0: Well, good evening, everybody. This is very different from what I normally teach. Uh, Normally, I teach anywhere between 30 and 65 fifth graders how to do fractions and to understand the three-fifths compromise. This is much weightier and much more important than that. And I would be lying if I told you I wasn't at least a little bit nervous. Um, Something you're going to also notice Uh, I don't have eyes that work very well, so I will be relying on my script more than um, you might notice sometimes with other people. Uh, Part of that is because tonight I think I'm teaching something pretty technical and I want to be pretty precise, so I'm going to uh, stay pretty close to my script. Um, So if you see me looking down, it's not because I don't care to look you guys in the eye or that I'm somehow ashamed of what I am to teach you tonight. It's because I care enough to be as precise as I can. So let's get right into it, okay? All right, question 15 was my responsibility. And the question says, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? And the answer to that is, when God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Adam by necessity of being the creature in the creator creation dynamic is obligated to obey God's law. Isaiah forty four or twenty one A declares, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I formed you. Shouldn't that be enough? Yeah, yeah, it should. So what is the point of entering into some arrangement with Adam? God didn't need to enter into any arrangement with Adam, by the very nature of being God, and Adam by his very nature of being creation is obligated to obey. That is his only—that is his only choice. That is acceptable. Okay. But God creates covenants. Okay, and you might ask, what is a covenant? Covenants are guaranteed commitments between two parties. Covenants typically have, I will and you will, language stipulations. Covenants are not in God's natural creation. God made covenants with man because he is a relational God. They are supernatural. Covenants go beyond the creator-creature dynamic. Covenants are God-initiated and are only instituted in one direction, from God to man. Man cannot initiate a covenant with God. Man does not make covenants with God because man does not have the authority to make covenants. Man does not have the ability or the power to make covenants. Man will try and make deals with God, but he is in no way able to demand God or bribe God or cajole God into doing anything. We see this in situations of tragedy where people try to arm twist God or bribe God into doing something that they want him to do. This is not relational in any sense. That is transactional. You give me this, I'll give you that. Covenants from God are always gracious to man. Like a Mago Dei, covenants are meant only for man's good. God condescends to man and through a covenant provides blessings and benefits that would not be available to man in any other way through the creator-creature dynamic. Covenants provide benefits that are distributed either freely or conditionally. There There are sanctions to breaking a covenant, and we will define these terms as we go. So that's the basic layout of covenants, okay? Two parties come together. Uh, both have responsibilities, both get some sort of blessing out of a covenant. You might be asking yourself, why did God need to make any arrangement with Adam? Simple, he didn't need to. God would remain completely righteous with or without covenants. Obedience would still be expected from his creation towards him. However, we, we are the ones who get a fuller, deeper love for God, through these arrangements, they reveal God's character to man and man's nature to himself. The covenant of works being played out in Eden, at this point in history, Adam is holy and blameless before God. Ecclesiastes seven twenty nineteen, or I'm sorry, seven twenty nine states, "See the see the alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out." many schemes. So God's creation of man made a man that was upright, a man that could be obedient. Genesis 1:28 says that God blessed Adam. God had provided all that Adam would need when God placed Adam into the garden. Genesis 2:15-16 states, "The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it." And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God provided Adam with all that he would need to thrive. Food, water, safety, shelter. However, sin in many ways is discontent with what God has provided. God gave Adam everything he would need. Adam was lacking in nothing. He had everything at his disposal that God needed him to have to keep him safe and to keep him thriving and being alive. Covenants are made up of four parts. There's a federal headship, there are stipulations, there are blessings, and there are sanctions. And we're going to see how all four of those things are played out in the covenant of works. And as we move through the lesson, we'll see how they're played out in better ways, deeper, more powerful ways through the covenant of grace. Federal headship within the covenant of works. Federal headship is the concept in which one man represents many people. God only covenants with a federal head. Everyone under that federal head receives the blessing or cursing that was promised to the federal head within the covenant. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, and Christ are each representative of a group of people. In the Mosaic covenant, Moses acts as a mediator between God and the Israelites but was not in and of himself a federal head for the Israelites. That headship will be established through David. Christ, on the other hand, is both mediator and federal head for everyone within the covenant of grace. We see a type of federal headship within the family. The husband or the father is the federal head for the family unit. He has responsibilities that God gave him to shepherd and lead his family. Presidents also act as a federal head in a secular sense. They represent their nation and their actions trickle down to all the people in that nation. Federal headship extends through time to all people that are within any covenant. We, although removed from Adam by roughly 6,000 years, are nonetheless still under the sanctions of the covenant of works. Because Adam was the federal head of all men except Jesus. God made this covenant of works with Adam and through Adam to his posterity. Because Adam failed to keep the covenant of, with God, all mankind was found guilty as well, leading to death for Adam and for Adam's posterity as well. Romans five twelve through 14 states, how, or excuse me, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was even given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who sinning was not like the transgression that Adam had made, who was a type of the one who was to to come. Christ being born of a virgin does not have this curse of sin. This allows him in part to be our federal head in the covenant of grace. So even as we were not the ones that actually broke the covenant of works the way that Adam had done it, Because he is our federal head. Every living person. We are all bound by those curses. We should not look at federal headship as something unfair to us. Yes, because of Adam, we're all cursed. His failure of obedience directly leads us to separation from God in both physical and spiritual death. We are still responsible for our own sin, though. We sin because apart from Christ, we can only sin. People... Apart from Christ, we will always choose to sin. Remember, though, in the the creation-creature dynamic, we are part of creation. God is creator. He can do any and all things that he wishes to do with his creation. He remains just even as we have to live with the sanctions that come from the covenant of works. Covenants are always good for man. The fact Adam didn't keep his part of the covenant does not make that covenant of works or any other covenant bad. Federal headship, although leading to death through Adam, leads to life for the believer through Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two states, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. To bristle against federal headship as if it is something wrong or unjust is to also decry the very vehicle that God uses for our justification through the covenant of grace, this bristling is also sin. It is at, it is us, the creation, telling God, the Creator, what He must do with His creation. We as Americans might think, no, I didn't do that, so I'm not held responsible. That's a big discussion that's going on in America right now. Should certain people feel guilty for things that other people did 150 years ago, 60 years ago, 400 years ago, and our natural inclination to say, I didn't do it, so that's not my fault. That's not on me. But this is different. God is in complete control and righteousness to hold us accountable to a covenant that we are part of due to Adam being our federal head. If we look at this idea of that's not right, that I didn't do it. So how am I being charged with that? You have to look at the covenant of grace and you have to say that same thing then because you are absolutely benefiting from that covenant of grace because Jesus is covering that for you. So you can't bristle against one and then cling to the other. Stipulations. These are within the covenant of works. Stipulations are the requirements that each party in a covenant are responsible to fulfill. Within the covenant of works that God established with Adam, there was a specific command that Adam was required to follow to follow to remain in covenant with God, as well as the consequences if Adam fails to fulfill his part of the covenant. We see in Genesis 2, 17, the first half, it says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. This is that continuation. God's like, here's everything. Eden is a giant buffet. Go to town, get like extra slurpees, go get the soft serve, but you stay away from that tree, okay? So God's clearly, he's laying out. Here, that you can have everything. You have everything you need to survive. Stay away from the tree. Don't do it. Don't touch it, don't eat it, leave it alone. Okay? So what are the blessings? All Adam has to do is stay away from one tree. Okay? Blessings are the earned or excuse me, the named benefits that parties receive from a covenant. God made a covenant of life with Adam where Adam would be or where Adam would experience eternal life if he kept his end of the covenant with God. Galatians 3:12 says, "But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall the one who does them shall live by them. So all at Adam at this point he has his eternal life. He will live forever so long as he is obedient forever. No mistakes, hundred percent. Don't err. Not don't put your toe over the line. Not even a teensy weensy. Be perfect at all times. You will live forever. Blessing. Oh, sorry. The sanctions are the threats that are put into a covenant that ensure and enforce commitment from both parties. In the covenant of works, Adam will die if he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The end of verse 17 clearly lays that out. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. We know that sanctions in contracts that we make with people here, if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, this bad thing can happen to you. Trish and I spent about 5,000 hours yesterday filling out or signing documents because we're refinancing our house. And one of the things that, uh, the notary said to us was if we fail to pay, they will take our home from us and we will be homeless. So that essentially feels like a covenant to me. You promise to pay me. I will let you keep your home. (laughs) Okay. So we, we're comfortable with that understanding in our everyday lives that is played out from how God sets up these covenants with these federal heads. When Adam disobeyed God's stipulation, he earned the sanction that God had promised would be put into place. The death that was stated was twofold. Okay? First, spiritual death, which happened immediately. The moment that Adam was disobedient, he entered into spiritual death and physical death as well, which happened over time. Um, so they took the buy of the apple, spiritually dead. Now, they might not have even understood that, But what we do know is that God was being honest with them and he's also being just. They broke his commandment. He now is going to punish them. At the time of judgment, however, God reveals the path that will lead to the covenant of grace. Genesis 3 records the fall. God is decreeing his judgments even before he places his judgments on Adam and Eve, he judges the serpent, saying in verse thir- uh, fifteen, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring; he shall, or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Even before he imposes judgment on Eve, and then finally on Adam, God points to someone in the future that will right the ship for many that Adam made ship- shipwreck of all. Redemption will come through Eve. The promise, of, the promise that God made to Adam and Eve while in the midst of judgment is kept in Christ. Where Adam failed within the covenant of works, Christ succeeded, thus establishing the covenant of grace. God would continue to covenant with people after Adam. God covenants with Noah, echoing the Edemic Covenant, telling Noah to be fruitful and to multiply, as well as to subdue the world by force over all the animals. God covenants with Abraham, promising him an inheritance of a great nation. The Mosaic Covenant is a continuation of God's covenant with Abraham, where God will lead his people giving them a law to follow through the Davidic covenant. God provides through David, a King and a throne that will never end. This leads us to a better covenant. So as God is progressing people through time, this covenant is being, um, more and more put into focus. Um, the way that you might go to a, um, optometrist and they always do the number one, number two, and they're, putting the little lenses in front of your face and you're telling them one each time a new covenant is being established the um the path is moving closer and closer and it's becoming clearer and clearer until we ultimately get to the covenant of grace the better covenant the covenant of grace is the better covenant than the covenant of works hebrews 8 6 through 7 states but as it is christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is erected on better promises for if I'm sorry for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second now as we read hebrews we might be thinking ooh there's something wrong with the covenant of works it's broken no friends it's not broken. You're broken. I'm broken. That's why the covenant of, of works was not, was not able to do what, it, um, what we would want it to do. Because we're broken people. The covenant of works was not insufficient because of, because of the covenant of itself. Or that God could not enact a good enough covenant. It wasn't good enough because we're not good enough to keep it. We needed a covenant that a federal head actually could keep. Only Christ could keep the covenant of works, which he did. The result of Christ fulfilling the covenant of works meant that we could be called into a better covenant, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is better because it provides sonship for all who are in it, okay? Sonship, daughtership. Adam's covenant only offered life, but it did not bring us into the family of God. It makes us heirs with Christ through his blood. The covenant of grace allows us access to God. All covenants point to the covenant of grace. They're all types. They're all shadows moving us along to get us to the covenant of grace, which is the better covenant to all the previous ones. They are not flawed in any way, okay? We don't want to walk away from tonight thinking, oh, those are all bad covenants. They just weren't good enough. No, they were perfectly good. They were instituted and they were, they did what they needed to do. Within the Mosaic covenant, animal blood was constantly needed to be shed while still providing no forgiveness of sin. Where animal blood couldn't, could never do. Christ's blood does once for all who would believe completely. Okay. Christ's sacrifice once covers all of his people. Animal sacrifice would just go constantly, day after day, week after week, year after year. And it could never do what Christ's blood could do. Amen. Notice Paul in Galatians 3 lays out the two, covenant, the two covenants, works and grace that every human is on. He further explains the end result of each track, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law, the covenant of works, are under a curse for it is written curse be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The covenant of grace. For it's written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, again, touching the Abrahamic covenant, might come true to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The better covenant, the covenant of grace. How does the better covenant play out for us? Well, the, the covenant of grace operates in many of the same ways that the covenant of works does. Federal headship, stipulations, blessings, and sanctions. But on a better level. The better federal head within the covenant of grace. Jesus is the better federal head of this new better covenant. Romans 5, 12 through, tw- 5, 12 through 21 explains how Christ is the better federal head than Adam, starting at 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verses 15 through 17 are juxtaposing Adam and Christ. The comparison of Adam's disobedience leading to death for all with Christ's obedience leading to life for all the elect and showing us just how much more powerful Christ's grace is for us in the comparison to the sin that held us in slavery. So you look at the man, Adam, and you look at the God-man, Jesus Christ, and you see that Adam's disobedience led to death for everyone. But Christ's work, his power, his perfection, his sinless, spotless life brought life for all that would believe. So much more powerful that the, the sin that controlled and drug us into hell for those that are in Jesus Christ, his blood covers that. Going on, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we might be thinking, oh, that means I'm going to sin a whole bunch. Because then grace will really bound. I can do whatever I want. No, that's foolishness. Okay? We don't sin if we're in Christ. We don't sin because it's wrong. It's an insult to the Savior who had to hang on a tree because we were vile people. We should want to be obedient. Because it took the death of God's own son to bring us back the better stipulations within the covenant of grace. Christ Christ was and is the only person able to fulfill the commitments found in the covenant of works. None of us could. Adam obviously couldn't. And because of his sin, it is impossible for us to do it. Only Christ could do it. His thorough obedience thoroughly satisfied his side of the covenant with the father thoroughly satisfying his side of the covenant. Notice, we are not in that at all. Thank goodness, because we could not uphold our end. It would have to be God the Father and the Son both working together to bring about our salvation. We could have no hand in it. Christ's obedience made the way for us to be drawn in saving faith into the covenant of grace. Our receiving Christ in faith into our hearts is also only done by God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. We can't even receive it. God has to give it to us. We are so blind, so desperately, desperately weak and wicked that we could never pick it. Only a God could do that for us. The better sanctions within the covenant of grace. You might be thinking, how are there sanctions? Christ being responsible for all other aspects of the covenant of grace would be the only one that sanctions would be applied to. Christ is incapable of breaking his commitments within the covenant, rendering sanctions, although real, moot. Okay, The God-man who is perfect, who could be the only one to do it, the sanctions were there. It was impossible for him not to be obedient. So even though they existed, they, in, in real life terms, we can look at that there was no danger for our Savior to fall into. He was tempted, he was tried, but he was obedient. Just as Adam's disobedience, his incapability of, of, of falling into it was there, our savior is incapable of not being disobedient. He, he, it is his nature to be obedient to the father. Mm-hmm. The better blessings, now this is the exciting part. A lot of us love blessings, but remember these blessings were purchased because a, an, a great, perfect God did what he had to do to make this covenant possible for us. We referenced Isaiah 44, 21 earlier in the lesson then I only read the first half of the verse 21. Reading now the rest of verse 21 and into 22, we see God declaring to Israel, O Israel, you, are, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sin, sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Through the covenant of grace, we receive many blessings through Christ in four areas. One, justification. Two, regeneration and sanctification three adoption and preservation and four resurrection and glorification. So we're going to go through, we'll talk a little bit about each one of those. So justification is the legal concept where something is declared just. Okay. Hey, you use the definition or use the word in the definition. Yeah, I did. I'm teaching tonight. So haha. in God's courtroom, people are justified in one of two ways through the covenant of works or through the covenant of grace. Only one person in history, Jesus, could and did stand justified by his works. We who are saved by his grace stand justified in the covenant of grace. Because one man could do it, he brought all of us who call him master and savior into the covenant of grace. Hebrews 9.22 states, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The shedding of blood does forgive sin, but it has to be the right blood. Hebrews 9.11-15 starts out, But when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, then through the, the, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the, for the purification of the flesh. And we're gonna pause right there for a moment. Okay, so we're seeing again, this juxtaposition. First, we saw between Adam and Christ. Now we're looking at it between the animal blood and Christ's blood. Okay. If animal blood could save, and we know that it can't, they would have been saved because there was blood all over the place, just constantly, but it never did anything meaningful for the, for the root cause of the problem, man's sin at best it covered and made you ceremonial clean to fall through, but it never cleansed you. Samuel Renahan describes the sacrificial system in Canaan as only good for cleansing the flesh. So it worked on the outside. Those sacrifices never cleaned the conscience. They were a reminder of your sin, not a cleanser for it. When those animals were slaughtered and you had to put your hand on their head as their blood was draining from them. That was not a, Oh, I'm totally satisfied. God's happy with me now. No, that was a, that was a point where you should have recognized this doesn't do this. I need something more. Christ's blood cleanses the conscious, thus justifying Hebrews nine goes on. How much more? Okay, so we see this how much more here. And we might think, oh, well, the previous part, it was doing something, but now this just does more of it. No, this how much more is not a comparison in terms of, well, here's nine apples and here's 11 apples and, if, and I've got some apples. No, how much more here is being used almost to describe like, that was nothing what I went to. Now, we're not just talking about this is better. We're talking about this is magnitudes better. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You are saved Not because you're a good person or a friendly person. I know most of you in this room pretty well. You're all friendly and nice people. I like you all very much. But that is not enough. You could never do enough. You needed a spotless lamb that actually could take away your sin. Justification is just one blessing, but there are more. We get regeneration and sanctification. As well as legally imputing Christ's righteousness onto us, Christ as our federal head renews us on the inside through regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration is the act of God turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It makes what was dead alive. Chapter 3 of John records Jesus talking with Nicodemus In the dialogue, we see the need for regeneration with Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just the Bible is replete with there's one way and it's Christ. Regeneration both removes and renovates. Made me think of HGTV. I like watching that at my house sometimes and just seeing the people tear down the house and rebuild it and make what was like a dingy dive, gross place that I would not want to touch at all. Something that I would be like, I think I could buy that. How much more does Christ come into the life of the sinner and make what was dead alive? The renovation of your heart is done by Christ. Our darkened minds are opened to the things of God. Our slavery to sin is broken for our freedom in and through Christ. The law of God is written on our hearts and we have the ability and desire to follow it. The unsaved might know God's law, but they are in no way able to follow God's law. At best, and this is, (laughs) by at best I mean not anything. They can follow something for a while to look like they are obedient. But even then, it's out of something for themselves, not out of a desire to be obedient to our master. The law is in rather than on us. Christ's blood is on us. Because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, we are led by the law, not condemned by it. Sanctification is the act of God growing us from spiritual children to young men to mature believers. So it has this growth cycle in our lives from the moment we're saved to the moment we graduate to heaven, you're being sanctified, okay? Sometimes it might look like the stock market, but at the end, you are completely sanctified in Christ. When you graduate, your sanctification is complete. The moment you are regenerated by God through the Holy Spirit, you start the path of sanctification. It is a lifelong process. Just as a baby grows into a toddler, child, adolescent, and finally an adult, sanctification does the same for the believer. We also get adoption and preservation. Both the covenant of works and grace require birth to enter into them. Physical birth enters everyone into the covenant of works. The day you're conceived... Ta da! You are in the covenant of works. You didn't even have to sign up. They signed you up already. Spiritual birth enters all the elect into the covenant of grace. The moment you receive Jesus Christ in your life, you are adopted into his family. Say that again. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, you are adopted into his family. You are his daughter. You are his son. Adoption makes a believer a child of God and a fellow heir with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the evidence of your adoption. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 state, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans eight fourteen through 17 in order that we may also be glorified with him. This adoption makes us open to the, dis- to the discipline of the father. Hebrews 12 lays out beautifully why dis- discipline is good for us. Now, I don't know about you guys. I was a bad kid. I did lots of dumb stuff. My mom was always disciplining me, usually with a spoon or a belt or her hand. So I, from a very young age, I understood that discipline came from a parent who loved you, okay? In our natural state, we might not want discipline. I don't want to be in trouble. I don't want to do anything that I don't wanna do. I wanna have an easy, free life. It's left to my own devices, but that's not good for us, okay? That would be a bad father who did not discipline his kids. Hebrews 12 lays out beautifully why discipline is good for us it is further evidence that the father is working in his children. Discipline is not only revealed in chastisement. Discipline is also God growing you. Discipline builds endurance. Hebrews goes on to explain what that discipline leads to. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I I saw how discipline can be a benefit um, to people over the last 18 months. Okay? Y'all know I'm a teacher. I told you guys that at the beginning. Well, 18 months ago when we got put in this mess, I had spent seven and a half months with my two classes. And we got pulled away from each other. No warning. We had to rely on Zoom at the time to still teach. Almost all of my kids did not skip a beat. They continued to work. And we talked about that. And at the end, they said, we were so used to just doing it that even though we had to be away and we were doing it through the computer, we, we just did it. Fast forward three months, start my new school year. Kids that had not spent any time with me and my partner, uh, learning, growing, being, having things put on their shoulders that they need to carry and be responsible for. And it was like dragging bags of sand through the ocean because they were not prepared to do all the things that they were responsible for. They did not have the discipline to be able to still be at home, have the allure of YouTube, have the allure of video games, be able to turn off the camera and ignore me. They, they were not trained to be successful. That is the big and best thing about discipline. It builds us into stronger better believers, ones who are much more in line with God's desires and want to fulfill his his commands for our lives, that discipline gives us the strength to do that. This adoption makes us, oh, oh, I already read that, sorry. Discipline is also God growing you. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a great book called Maturity that spends large portions discussing the blessings of discipline and chastisement in the Christian life. You should be excited when God disciplines you. He's making you a stronger Christian, He's showing you your need for Him in your life. It's stripping away you thinking, oh, I can do this. No, friend, you can't. You need God's discipline it opens your eyes to exactly how much you need him. And the more you, you recognize that you need God to grow you and that his discipline is good for you, the more open you are and the, the more your sanctification happens. We, having been regenerated, justified, adopted, and sanctified, will also receive the blessing of resurrection and glorification through Christ Jesus. As he was resurrected, so shall his fellow heirs. 1 Corinthians describes Christ as the life-giving spirit, which Adam could never be. Although we will physically die as a result of Adam's and our own failure to be obedient to the covenant of works, death is not the beginning of our curse of eternal punishment under God's wrath. Instead, it is a homecoming to our Savior. Nick talked about that. Um, in his sermon today, um, when, when saints are called home to be with the Lord, they should be able to hear well done, good and faithful servant for everyone who God called as, as his children, that day will be the first day of a new heaven and earth, where we will all see the face of God through his son, seeing worshiping and being in God's presence for eternity is the ultimate blessing Found within the covenant of grace. What covenant are you in? If you think that you're in the covenant of grace because, well, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not Hitler. Or I do a lot of good things. Or all paths lead to God. You're believing a lie. Acts 4.12 says, And there is no salvation in anyone else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just being, quote unquote, a good person or I'm not as bad as that guy. In fact, like people say, I'm not Hitler. Pick a better person to compare yourself to. You're picking like one of the worst. You need to pick someone that you think, no, that person really is good. But even then. You are not good enough because your comparison to Hitler or John MacArthur or Nick or John or me or anyone else that you're comparing the wrong things, friend, your comparison needs to be against the perfect law of God. Does your life meet that standard? It either meets it because you're perfect or it meets it because Christ is perfect and his blood covers you. If you think that you're in the covenant of grace because I said a prayer once to ask Jesus into my heart and your heart, your mouth, your bank account, your web page history, your calendar, and or your friends would say otherwise, you are also believing a lie. Christ quoting Isaiah in Matthew 15 states, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips But their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The only reason that anyone is saved is because Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, fulfilling the covenant of works. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, all those who have been called to be heirs with him believe. Their lives are radically changed The fruit that they show bears witness to a life called to repentance by God. This fruit does not purchase their way into the covenant of grace, but it is evidence that they are already within that covenant. Both Peter and Paul urge believers to take self-assessment of our faith. Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Look at your life. Is there something there? Look at what you spend. Go through your bank statement on the computer. Go through your web history. Is there evidence that you have been regenerated by God? Look and see. If looking inward... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. If looking inward, you know that you are not wholly trusting Christ as your only way to salvation. You know that you have sinned against the Holy God. You know that apart from Christ's work on the cross, that the only thing you deserve is God's wrath poured out on you fully repent, believe that Christ paid the debt that rightly should be charged to you. Believe that his blood is the only thing that could, that could cover you. Through Adam, you are cut off to God, but through Christ, you can be saved. If you have any questions about your standing in God's eyes, please come and talk to me after this lesson. Talk to Nick. Talk to any of the elders. The great length the great lengths that God goes to have a relationship should drive us to have a connection with him that is real. Do I keep him and honor him as my head, recognizing the blessings that he provides and the sanctions that he took for me? Do I think about what he did for me and how my life should demonstrate how grateful I am to a savior that took on what rightfully should be put on my shoulders? So wrapping up, let's look back at the question and the answer from the catechism and interpose the language of covenants to clearly see it. Question 15 again asked, what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? And the answer, when God created man, he entered, and here we see the covenants are initiated by God only, into a covenant of life, the blessing, with him, Adam being our federal head, upon condition of perfect obedience, there's that stipulation, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death, and there is the sanction. So at the end of this, we should look to the cross as the instrument that brought us from death into life. If you are saved here, it is because Christ took and did what you could not do. Yeah. Right. I will take any of your questions. Hopefully I can actually answer them. <laughs> and if I can't, I will rely on
1: Nick and other people.
0: Uh, if you're going to have a question, don't put your hand up like this. I'm super blind. I will not see it. If you're in the back, you should probably stand up, maybe do this. Okay. If you're in the front or just ask him out, I'm fine with that as well.
2: So, um, if the stipulation, if the only stipulation, well, like, so is there any other stipulation for the covenant of works other than um, fulfilling the whole law perfectly?
0: You have to be, yeah. All you need to do is be perfect forever from the moment you were conceived until the end of eternity. So, then like,
2: you <laughs> How were they saved if
0: the covenant of grace was enacted like in Christ's time? Like how were they, Mm -hmm. how were they able to be saved? Yeah. Ephesians one, let me, uh, technology, you're ruining me. Ephesians one mentions that, talks about before the foundation of the world. Okay. So the same savior that saves you, saves me, saves Trish is the same savior that saved Abraham saved David, that, that from the foundation of the world, where we're those who God calls to be his children are adopted there. So um, by faith, we receive grace. Paul talked about that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is the same faith that um, saved Old Testament saints. If you look at Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, you go through and it talks about faith saving all of those people. I would say that, that, yes, that covenant of grace goes in both directions from the cross.
2: Okay.
0: It covers everybody who is, who is to be saved and who, um, who, was al- who had already lived in faith that God was going to um, justify them. Those people are saved. Now, Abraham couldn't describe how he was saved, but he trusted God and believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. You and I would be able to pretty easily tell Abraham, if we saw him in heaven, I mean, clearly he already knows. We're going to find out for sure when we're there. Like, we'll be able to be perfect about it the way that he could explain it. But we could explain that, where he is just trusting that God made these promises to me. I, I know he's going to fulfill them. Yeah, good question.
1: Well, that lines up really well with an understanding of salvation that doesn't rest at all on our own shoulders. Because if salvation is all of God's decree and in his will and desire then the people in the Old Testament did not need to know that that was happening. God was drawing them to himself through the means which were available to them. So their understanding of their own salvation was incomplete, but so too is ours in some ways. There are parts of our our uh, salvation that we don't fully understand, but because this is God doing his will in our lives, it, it doesn't have to be complete. It's complete in him. That's why he gets paid the
0: big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John, and then Brian. That was a good question.
3: I just, uh, I think a lot of the debate too comes in um, when you say little perfect life. I remember when I first came to this church. This was like the spring of twenty nineteen. We got into a good debate about the law with Ross, and we went to Sunday school. And I was like, man, these brothers love to get at it, right? And so the question is, and I know this from Trigger Paul who's here. <laughs>
0: remember to Facetime him in. <laughs>
3: The 613 or the New Covenant decal. I mean, so my question is taking Eve's and going a little bit further, not not the who and the how, but mainly like how. Um, so if someone were to keep it, and I mean I know what you're saying. They obviously we all believe in the original sin, that no one could ever go back and undo that, right? Everyone's born into the, mm-hmm. the works of Um, But even if someone was possible to keep the law to be justified, I think this is where the debate comes in, right? It's like, okay, the covenant, the old covenant was with Israel, but is God going to condemn sinners based off of all the law? I'm talking the judicial, the civil, ceremonial, the dietary that goes along with it. All of the above. So this is where Christians hotly contested, it's hotly contested and debated among scholars. Um, mm-hmm. What are we talking about to make her And this is not like a trick question, Steve. I'm just asking you personally, what would be your position on that? Let, um,
0: let me clarify and make sure I know what you're asking. Yeah. I'll give you my best answer and then come at me if you don't like it. Like, yeah, no, I, uh, okay. there is no not like <laughs> Okay. If you're asking me if, if Gentiles are held accountable, it, let me make sure. A Gentile without Christ dies, is he being held accountable to the moral law, the ceremonial law, don't eat lobsters, and the judicial laws, is he being held accountable to all of those? Yes. That's would what you're be, asking me.
3: Would it, be, would it be reduced to the ten? Would it be dependent upon when they're born? what covenant God is in, you know, with his people. So, okay. just, I mean, we don't go out and preach, hey, don't go eat shellfish. Right, That's for sure. Part. But is God going to hold
0: unbelieving people to
3: all of it? Would it? Like what James says, if you offended at one point, you're guilty of all. Is it the 613?
0: We- I think it, I would argue that it's for the 10, the moral law. Um, we're not Israel. So if I'm not held accountable to eat the, to, if if like Peter was laid open, and he was, and God showed him and said, "Eat of everything. We're Gentiles; we can eat of whatever we want." I I don't think that we're held to that as people in sin. I think the moral law you're held accountable to. And I, if God tacks on all those extra charges, he's the creator; he gets to. But if you're asking me, my gut saying. It's the moral law. You broke the moral law because people were already in sin before the law even came. We, we read about that in Romans. It talked about that there was already sin before even the law came. So I think you're held accountable to the moral law. The ceremonial law are for, is for like, ancient Israel to follow. That's not for us. So I don't see that God's going to hold me accountable for that. But if I'm outside of Christ, I've got way bigger problems than if I'm eating shellfish and wearing like, rayon and cotton.
3: Yeah, no, and that's, I think that's kind of the, the, the trap too, right? Is that we get focused in on that part, but there's ways around, I think, uh, ways around saying really, 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 there's ways people compensate, while well, they'll say, well, the, the first table of the law is about God, second table of the law is about man, and then they'll include some of these, uh, I'm thinking more of the judicial laws, like for instance, there are things that are mentioned in the New Covenant, that are, not, um, that are not really summarized in the 10, that would still be, uh, they would be moral in, in a sense, right? Like for instance, uh, if you look at Revelation, revelation, um, when it talks about the unholy that are outside the gates, right? The abominable, the sorcerers, you know, it talks about witchcraft and stuff like that, right? So mm-hmm. you don't see that particularly mentioned in the 10 commandments, but someone would say, well, that falls under this, commandment of that one,
1: right? Mm-hmm. So I think when we start thinking narrow, we can say, well, it's just
3: the shellfish, or the woven clothing, or, you know, what about the menstrual cycle? We start thinking about all that, but there's a whole range of other things, like for instance, in First Timothy 1, where the laws did the name kidnapping, and all these other aspects that aren't really mentioned in the death law. So, that presents a problem when I watch these guys debate back and forth. I'm like, ah, oh, interesting. And I know Stu's sitting back there, and if he stays quiet, I'd be very angry at him. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that he can expand on what I'm trying to articulate here.
0: Mm-hmm. Stu, so you want to jump in? <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're doing fine. I might jump in go minute. So I- That's fine.
3: No, so I think just with that said, I think uh, it makes for a real good discussion. I know Paul and I have gotten into some pretty knockdown debates over this, and uh, you know he's uh been able to get his buttons pressed here and there. <laughs> so much his brother was here tonight, but it's, it's
0: probably really, why he snuck out so he wouldn't have it's to. Been very <laughs> fruitful of a
3: discussion mm-hmm. in the utmost sense. So it's it's helped me learn and to be challenged with these things as well.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from. Um, like the kidnapping, I, I I don't know. I guess is there is there a sin that doesn't fall under the 10 like kidnapping is clearly i mean it's covetousness probably in some way like i want money i want you you're never gonna leave me i'm not totally sure i i mean in, in the brass tacks like if you're either you're either in grace or in works yeah yeah
1: no, something that's not yours. You didn't, you didn't mention my option. So you said, are people 613? Or the 10? I would say the 1. When you get to hell, you're not looking around and say, what are you in for? You know, <laughs> yeah. We're all in for Adam. We're in for the 1. We're all in Adam. I mean, that's why we're here. So, really what that debate talks about is really what is God going to hold man accountable to here on earth in society? and what ways will he bless and curse? And I would have to say according to his will. So you know, I, I think that anyone who disregards any aspect of the law completely is a fool because the law comes from the Lord. So anything that comes from his hands should be uh, a guiding principle that we should use to think better about life and about society and about government and about how we govern our families. But as far as like what are we beholden to, well, we're in Christ, so whatever we are beholden to, Christ has fulfilled it doesn't mean we're antinomians. I mean, we look to all the law and be thankful for it, and we use it however we can. But I, I think when we're talking about, like, what's going to actually condemn people, we're looking at the covenant of works in the garden, the fact that Adam, that federal head, ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree. That's what's going to condemn everybody else. Everything else is academic, in a sense. Unless you're in Christ. No, no doubt. I'm just talking about the... When you think of when
3: Jesus condemned... You know, the false teachers, right? These old Pharisees they said, Woe do you when you talk about all the cities, what, right? What do you, best say to, you know, woe to you, right I'm not Sodom. or Sodom. Wo, or woe, woe, because if the works had been preached, you know, had been done, um, that had been done there, you know, they would have repented a long time ago, right? But they weren't, right? So in that, we see that there are different degrees of punishment, right? So it makes for not, like you say, the justification part, yeah, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, no doubt and amen 100%. But when it comes to the condemnation, yes, there are different degrees of punishment. There are different degrees of sin, right? Every sin is not a crime. So it does make for an interesting discussion, especially when you get into the realm of apologetics and you start to talk to uh, you know, toward Jews and stuff like that, who don't even believe in you know, eternal judgment, you know, and stuff like that. So... And just with other believers. I mean, I just enjoy that discussion the more I get familiar with it and
0: see where it leads. Amen. Oh, boy. Have at me, Stu.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Sorry, Brendan, you were up. No worries. I was going to go ahead and kind of add on to I believe Deeby's question, so, you know, she was asking, like, how are the Old Testament saying saved in comparison how, like, are we saved? Mm-hmm. I would read uh, Hebrews 4, which I think is, like, a direct answer to that, assuming, of course, um, you know, the context. But, so says, therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For, indeed, the gospel, which we all know, as we heard, the gospel is what's saved, Romans one sixteen. It's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes in it. It's a Jew, first, into the Greek for indeed, the gospel is preached to us as well as to them, referring to the Old Testament, uh, saying to Old Testament Israel. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said, so I swore my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, which is what Stephen alluded to from the foundation of the world, this is a reference to the gospel already being prepared and ready for all those who believe in it. Verse 4 For he has spoken a certain place of the seventh day in this way And God rests on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place they shall not enter my rest since therefore it remains that some must enter it and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience again he designated a certain day saying David today after uh after such a long time, as it has been said, today if hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given him rest, then he would not have afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Amen. So, um, as you see, the author of Hebrews here is articulating that the way that Old Testament saints were saved is really the same way the New Testament saints, saved, New Testament saints, are saved, which is by the gospel. Amen. But of course as you alluded to If you ask Abraham what is like Can you explain the fullness of the gospel uh, Obviously wouldn't be able to That's why Christ would say in Matthew 13 um, Blessed are your eyes for they see what they see And bless your ears for they hear what they hear For many righteous men Desire to hear what you hear but they couldn't hear it yeah. So he's alluding to the disciples That you're able to see the fullness of what the gospel is That's a blessed sight for you to be able to hear Because people of the Old Testament they believed in it but, man, they really desire to be able to see the fullness of what that really looks like. Yeah, amen. Yeah, so since the Old Testament saints, they believe in the gospel, but really essentially on promises. They trust in the promises. They didn't know how that was going to work, but they said, Lord, you are true. Your promise is true, and that's what I'm going to hold on to by faith. And amen. that's how they will say the Old Testament. 100%. You could actually argue the faith of the Old Testament believers
2: is actually so much more than the, the New Testament believers. Because they had they almost no idea what yeah, ours okay. is more sight, right? Yeah, exactly. Because because we're looking we're looking back. They were looking forward. They had, they had no basis for comparison. Like even when, when God told Abraham to go to to uh, to Canaan, right? Abraham didn't, like God didn't say like okay, you're going here because I'm going to do this 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 and this, and then you're going to go there there and there and kill a bunch of people and do all that. He just he just went by blind faith. So it
1: was it was kind of crazy. And he says that again to. Thomas as well, when he shows him the holes in his side and the holes in his hands. Mm -hmm. He says, blessed are you for you have seen and believed. Even more blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Good point. There's a big debate around.
3: chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, he was glad, right, so I think, you know, and i am learned this a lot in engaging lot of my Jewish buddies, oral tradition is something that we really, I mean don't think about in the sovereignty of God, that God actually spoke out of right, so there are things that that I think some knew that we are not privy to, right, that I don't think are in the pages of Scripture. I mean, when I think of Palm Sunday, and I'm throwing down all those branches, I mean, I think, of course, yeah, God's sovereignty. You see Jesus saying, go and tell this person, go and get that, and they'll know exactly what you're talking about, right? I think there are things that God communicated where you think of just even today, right? Some Christians are more academic in their worship than others, right? So i more than others. I think the same is true back then. But some really heeded the voice of God. I mean, the old covenant saints wouldn't even move unless God had instructed them. You know, I'm like, well, we're going to go. No, we're waiting on you, Lord. It's like, we're well, going over there. And they were terrified. You know, but the, they wanted God to go with them, right? And so when I think back at that, I think that we don't really know for sure, like, how much I think Abraham seems to stick out to me as one who knew a lot more than others, and those saints who you know, when Jesus jumped on the donkey, I think they, there was more God, I think, superintended in his sovereignty to teach some more than
1: others, So I would have yesterday. Yeah, David displays a greater knowledge of salvation than his contemporaries in the Psalms. We see all these prophetic declarations in the Psalms that I'm sure other people at the time were like, I don't know what he's talking about, but...
0: <laughs> That's a nice <laughs> poem.
1: It's a great promise for the Lord, you know, hopefully we'll see this someday. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, for sure, God let some be privy to glimpses of what was to come, just as John got a glimpse of his second coming. Amen. Ivan. To- yeah, no, just a comment kind of what John was
2: talking about earlier last week, make hopefully I make a minute for message. Kind of what he's talking about and trying to explain. I think one thing that you did outstanding, brother, that you really throw down to the federal headship aspect, One, when it comes to our salvation, right, it provides a deeper understanding and a better understanding of Calvinism because our issue, right, is not so much that we're sinners, like that's part of it, but it's really that union of Adam, right, that is the root of our sin, right. He's our federal head; we're born of that headship, and we're condemned. Now, I think kind of like what John's talking about in his position or his question about the law is the question is like, are these commands going out beyond the church, beyond? Obviously, part of that is historical, right? So, um, Abraham wouldn't have been responsible for going into the tabernacle, right, and making sure he washed in the labor and going into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling blood, right, because that hadn't been instituted. Mm -hmm. But, however, he was responsible for the commands that were presented to him at that time. The Bible also tells us that the law of God is written on the heart of man, right? So, we're image bearers of God. The law is a reflection of his character. Now, as we march through history, right, the people of Israel that were given that specific command were responsible for those duties uh, of those laws, right? So, if they neglected to do those laws, it was sin on their part, right? God says, "Do this." If you don't do it, sin. So, one thing that's unique about Israel is Israel was not only a nation and a state, right, but it was also like a picture of the church. So, we see those laws um, you mentioned. They're civil. Ceremonial, moral, right? So we see the ceremonial laws, dietary laws; those things are types and shadows in the picture of Christ, right? Hebrews tells us that, right? Christ is the high priest, He is the perfect lamb. So when Christ came, right, those things were fulfilled in Him. It wasn't even that they were done away with, but they were f- fulfilled in the person of Christ. So now there's no responsibility for Pastor Nick to walk into a tabernacle to wash in the labor and sprinkle and burn, burn sacrifices, right? So I think those laws are also specific to history, and time, and revelation, right? I mean, if I had been a Nazarite, i couldn't cut my hair. I can't grow it here. I'd not cut my hair. So, when we come to our responsibility or the burden to obey God's law, I think that's absolutely a part of it. Not just as unbelievers, but even believers, right? We're held accountable for God's law, and there will be sanctions, positive or negative, based on how we respond to what God's command us. So, I think part of maybe what John's getting at Um, is, yes, when someone's in hell, like, if you do not have faith in Christ, right, it's a guarantee you're going to go to hell. However, part of the way in which God judges men in covenants, Adam and Christ, both covenants are governed by ethics, right? Part of the basis of his judgment is the works we did, right? Like, we're going to stand before God in judgment in our works. Part of what's going to make hell, hell, right, is our conscience being let loose for all eternity, all those times that people rejected God's free grace, that they looked up and saw the sun and didn't worship him, that they heard birds chirp and the fresh breeze of air that God gave them, hit their face, and they spit in his face, right? Mm -hmm. All those things are going to be echoing in their mind for eternity, right? That's part of what makes hell, hell. It's not just simply, well, I didn't obey Christ, right? Um, And the same thing for the believer, right? It tells us, the Bible tells us that person who teaches to do less of these laws, right, would be called least in the kingdom of heaven, right, there's a form of judgment that takes place even for the believer, not in an ultimate sense, right, but we have a responsibility to God's law, so I think that's kind of the, and I could be missing, John, you can like turn back and throw something at but there is not just an overall general sense of like, yes, there's a definitive and final sense, right, like, if you're saved, you're saved, right, now and when you come to glorification, right? People that aren't saved, so they didn't put their faith in Christ, but still, there's meat and potatoes when it comes to the law and its application and our duty and responsibility to doing that. And I think we see those consequences not just now, or just people don't see them just in eternity, but we even see them played out now, right? Because we're unfaithful to God, right? We reap consequences for those actions, right? One of the conversations that we had the other night is uh, culture is religion externalized, right? What we believe. How we act and how we respond and how we do things. So I think that aspect of law is a huge and important factor in both covenants, right? Whether someone's an Adam or Johnny, you to throw know something at me or what? He no, but like? so the magnitude of our sin in you know, outside of Christ is what I think
3: of. Just when we get that uh, illustration of, you know, the bird robbing God of his glory, like we don't really think of that, the weightiness of that, right? And how, you know, whether people call it common grace or kind providence or whatever, it's like, if you're outside of Christ, how can you appease the wrath of God even for the sins of Adam? You know, just being in the federal head of Adam, I mean, you just think I think of Psalm 53, I was in the Soteriology one group late Flowers, and it's just amazing to watch, like, all these open theists and what's the name of that uh, website you said, John? Like, the Polish their means will come at you. I think there's one, they're examining Calvinism. Yeah. Right. And those guys are really, like, trained. I mean, they're wrong, but, like, if you go in there and you're not well versed, I mean, they'll have you backpedaling in a heartbeat. And Brendan's been in that group before, and those guys, they kicked me out the other day, but they do not believe in some of that original sin at all, in any sense. Psalm 58.3 is wicked, estranged from the womb. As soon as they are born, they go forth speaking lies. So people can actually try to break that down. So, Oh, that's not talking about that or this, that, and the other. And I'm like, well, I disagree. And how are you going to appease the wrath of God for you existing in a state that's fallen? You know, you can't. I mean, it just shows you the hopelessness of man outside of Christ. You know, like Nick said, we can break down all these sins to the umph to the finest degree, but there's no hope for man. But, but it sounds like the the folks in the um, the folks that deny original sin would still admit that all people do acts of sin. And so therefore they're culpable to it. Yeah, they would they would affirm like right, nobody no, no, gets sin. off scot-free, right? But you're responsible for it. Yeah, but it kind of tends to shed the focus away from the person in the work of Christ and focus on the person and work of sinners for justification, because they believe that in order to persevere in salvation, you must keep yourself in the love of God for for a salvific, you know, sense to be justified. So it sounds like they have another issue. It sounds like the issue actually has nothing to do with original. I think, yeah, and no. You, you, you could you part of not it, believe
2: I mean. in original sin, but still trust in, in, and believe in, in the finished uh, work of Christ alone, right? And, and, and nothing because, nothing meritorious in your person. Depending this, you on know, the spectrum we're talking yeah, it about. It
3: seems like there's, there's two issues over there. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, for the sinner, if you're talking about one person, or when you start getting into the age of accountability and all that other stuff, then, and
1: infants, you know, there's, there's going to be issues everywhere, is exactly. what I'm saying. I haven't been on that site, but in my debates with Arminians, I would guess that their adamancy against original sin is the idea that they have come up in their minds of thinking that that would make God unjust and yes. put it upon us without us initiating it ourselves. So it's a, it's a, sovereignty is kind of a deal-breaker for them. Absolutely. Because they, their definition of fairness doesn't see God as being greater than that. Right. But, regardless of what position, it seems like it's a moot point at the end, right? Because
2: if everybody's guilty of acts of commission anyways, we're, we're all busted anyway, right? Yeah. And did that's why I, that. I break the speed limit because my dad taught me you know, how to drive incorrectly or <clears throat> did I do it
1: because I just wanted to be reckless, you know, you still broke the speed limit. Yeah, road. in a functional sense, Christ is still necessary. Mm, yes. Absolutely. It ends up with a lot of
3: condemnation to hell on both sides. I mean, when you listen to those debates, they tell us we're not saved and then I mean, I've always struggled calling people brother that believe you can lose your salvation because I always see, I have a hard time seeing it is finished, you know, to tell us I you know, if you have to do A, B, and C, and then X, Y, and Z, you have to believe, like I think of B.B. Warfield, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, not on account of faith. And then you add the other aspect of it. Well, to continue in the faith, you have to, you could be lost, like Phineism, right? You could believe in the morning be lost in the afternoon. I mean, that just seems to be dependent upon man. I mean, it's synergism, right? Consistent synergism. So it's, it's scary teaching
0: man. Well, just give me a little bit of the credit then. I get to boast a little bit then.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: What's that? I just, just give me a little bit of the credit then. I get to boast a little bit. Right,
1: exactly. <sighs> yeah. So. yeah. All right.
4: So this is a question that I had because you brought up earlier that you know Adam was to have a perfect obedience and he would have lived forever, right? You know remember you said that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was looking just to make sure, but you know when Adam did eat the fruit with along with Eve, God kicked him out of the garden, but mm-hmm. he did say, "Let us kick, let's kick, kick, them out before they reach out their hand and eat out of the tree of life, unless they live forever." Yeah, it's gonna bring that up So when you said that, if they they you
0: know, would physically they, live forever, they yeah. would still be spiritually dead, separated.
4: So I know this is going beyond but also that's one thing that you know also always fun to think about. Yeah. So
1: the Bible doesn't really explain the mechanics of the tree of life, so we don't know if that would be like you continually eat of it, you live forever. Yeah. We don't really know. See, so. But there is uh there is a concern in the heart of God and a, and a need for these reprobates to be removed from that mm-hmm. place of idealism and presence of the Lord. So, I
0: yeah. think in Nick, back me up or tell me I'm wrong, but in that Renahan book he made the he made the claim I thought that if Adam would have been faithful and obedient in his test to uh, don't eat the fruit, that the yeah, the, the tree is his reward for think, his obedience. One
1: of the questions I was going to ask you is if you could expand a little bit on like, what does it mean in the catechism question when it says that he made a covenant of life? Like why is it specifically a covenant of life? Why was it just a covenant? And I think it's – the covenant of life was to show that in – absolute obedience to the Lord, there is life and that we we don't have to deal with the consequence, the sanction of death if we are obedient to the Lord perfectly. Um, and what I love about what Renahan had to say is something I had not really thought about before is that this was a trial set up in the garden. So it's not like there was always the chance for Adam to fail. And so even if he made it through this trial with a serpent and maybe like 20 years down the road, maybe then he fails. But no, this was like, this was a crossroads. And Christ sets up this test in such a way, or God sets up this test in such a way that if, if Adam perseveres through it and is obedient, then in that case, that ability to fall and sin is now removed and there is life forever in a perfect relationship of obedience. So, I never really thought about it that way until uh, reading Renhan's stuff, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, of course, it's hard for us to know exactly the, the complete accuracy of that thought because uh, the scripture doesn't get into the details of what would have or would not have happened. But uh, as far as like, theories, that's the best one I've heard so far. I
0: think
1: RC's take on that would be like um, Adam was like Passe, not
2: Picari before he was possible for him to not sin, whereas in our glorified state, we would be not on the hakari, so with the inability or the teach to sin. So some, I, mean, there's, there's I think a, there's definitely a big difference on that
0: same trajectory. Yeah. Christine? Christine? Huh? You said you had, you were confused about something?
1: Yeah, I'll ask you on the way home now. Mm-hmm.
0: But it might help us out.
1: Well, I don't think so. Well, I'm confused about the covenant of works. Mm -hmm. because you always told me that we don't get to heaven by works Mm -hmm. so I'm confused technically we do get to heaven by works but not by our works we get to heaven by the perfect works of Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. so the covenant of of the garden which is this covenant of works that is set up between God and the federal head Adam that covenant resulted in a great tragedy and a, a tremendous loss Because Adam failed to keep the one work that he was told to do. But the greater and better covenant is a covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, we have a different leader. It's not Adam anymore. We switch that. Now we're under the leadership and headship of Christ. And Christ does what Adam should have done and did not do. So Christ does the work of fulfilling the law. And then he suffers like one who didn't fulfill the law. So that our penalty... What we owe to God because of our sin isn't just like brushed under the rug or forgotten. It's punished perfectly, but it's punished through Christ and his life and his death. And his death. And his resurrection. Yeah. So, Does that make sense? I just get confused. Because you know when I, where I used to go? So are you eat. bringing in
0: bad food into the, good, the restaurant well, where you're I'm getting confused. good food? <laughs> so I'm Nah, I'll slow down. Would you bring bad food into a good restaurant? No. So then, don't bring in bad teaching into good teaching.
1: Well, that's why I'm confused. I know. So I'm telling
0: you, don't bring it in.
1: So just forget it.
0: I would, like, I would make sure that, and I'm not in any different place than you are. I have, I have things that I've learned that are wrong that are being unlearned, huh? Yeah, yeah. Everyone comes to the Lord with baggage of some sort of theology. Okay, the New Agers come in with something. The Mormons come with something. The ex-Catholics come in with something. The atheist comes in with something that needs to be stripped away. Like that's that's part of the Lord maturing us because we come in. Think of it like a statue that God, for the rest of your life, God is working on this statue, taking chips out, smoothing the stone so that when you are actually <clears throat> graduated to heaven with the savior, there is a perfect statue that God has of you. So like, as you're a new believer, you're going to have a whole lot of chips and a whole lot of smoothing that, that God does in that sanctification. But that's not any different than the sanctification process that's happening with Nick or with John or with me or with Will. It. God's sanctifying us all from a place where we're at when he saves us all the way into the moment that we're in glory with him. And it's like, we get to be drawn into this process and we see this savior who loves and cares for his kids to discipline us and to train us up. That's why getting into your word daily is so important because those bad things that we've all learned, like John would back me up on that. Like we all come with stuff that's wrong. And only through God's word and his spirit revealing things to us and opening our eyes so that we can see what the truth is, he he takes those things away and he replaces them with truth. So when you are in down, you're like, This doesn't make any sense. Like that's good. Ask questions, but recognize like I use this analogy a lot about food, like you ate at a bad restaurant. Stop bringing that bad restaurant food into the new restaurant where you're getting the good food. Just recognize that. Arby's is bad. Don't bring Enough it into this, Chris. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, it was the first restaurant I thought of. I really should have <laughs> really said something
1: else. But. but bringing those things in and asking questions about them
0: is how Absolutely.
1: sanctified. See, I, yeah, I get confused. But recognize they're that they're not valid.
0: That.
2: Do you okay. have that knowledge on her background specifically that you're aware of that already in advance or why? A oh, little. We've
0: spent a lot of time together. Okay. I can't escape her.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do. Like, listening to you, Christine, um, I know why he's saying that because, you know, I think what he's trying to say is you're trying to make sense of it through the old lens of the bad food. Yeah. And you've got to stop doing that and start listening to good doctrine, sound words, you know, Wholesome words, that's what sound words are. You know, you were taught, just like I was, Romanism. It took years and years of being around brothers that were solid. I remember, you know, I used to debate with Brother John here. You know, my Roman Catholicism, it's funny how a lot of Baptists can't stand Rome and they attack it. But they're just like it, you know, with their (laughs) synergism so you know, things can stumble us and trip us up away from Christ and I think that's what Steve is saying and that comment you made I know that will keep us here another half hour but the theoretical one from Renahan, mm-hmm. I've stumbled over that a couple times and that's it's interesting you know I know a lot of Christians have debate over that too so yeah,
1: yeah so for we, sure well it is eight twenty. Yeah. And we try to finish up around eight. So thank you guys for all the stuff that you guys have brought to the table today in discussion. Really good to talk about those things. And if you want to hit me up in a text later on, we can talk more about that detail. I have another question.
0: Why do you whine so much, whiner?
1: Well, just give me some cheese. You
0: got like twenty seconds. Ask it quickly.
1: Now I forgot.
0: Good. Ask me later. <laughs> text me later. <laughs> I'm on the next one way home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can try to oh, eat 20 I minutes out of my remember, life. Right. So he, he knows that I will forget things. Uh,
1: all right. Well, thank let you. me... Preaching the word for us tonight, brother. Let me close
0: this in prayer. And I really appreciate you guys, like, enduring this with me. I appreciate it a lot. Father, thank you for this evening, Lord. And above all, we thank you for your son's marvelous work on the cross. It purchased um, life for all of your children, Father, something we could never have a hope to do without you, Lord. Thank you so much for bringing us here, Father, uh, to openly um, declare your righteousness and your glory, Father. Protect us as we move through this week. Give us opportunities um, to be drawn nearer to your son, Father, um, to share your light with a dying world, Father. Thank you for everything that you've given to us. Amen.
1: Ask quickly. The Covenant of Work.